0: Who you are. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that you're good and that you're holy and that you love each and every one of us. Father God, we know that you're faithful in all of your promises. We stand here today and pray for your voice through Mark today Mm. and that you would speak what you have in mind today, Father God, and that you would open hearts here and open eyes and open ears and more than anything else Father God that you would push into us and pull us back into you and work on that relationship Father God Mm -hmm. because there's nothing more important than that that your words would close the gap between us today and we thank you for who you are and we look forward to this new year and that you would strengthen our relationship with you in that Speak through Mark today. In yes. Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Thank
0: you. You
1: guys good? It's really good to see your smiling faces and to worship with you. And it's good to have Evan and Cece lead us in that way. It's, yeah. Guess what? We're wrapping up Chapter 8 in Romans today. I know, so put on your seat belts. It's um, it's been a good journey. Romans eight is the hinge point in the book and the letter. There are so many truths and so many things, uh, that that kind of have built up to this, and now it's it's like you've 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 crested the mountain and you're you're coming down the other side with momentum, and so we'll continue to think together about it. And last week when Brendan was preaching, he closed with this verse. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And we hear that verse and we think, man, it's going to be like this. Right? (laughs) How, when you first met the Lord, you thought, oh, wow, this is so cool. It's so awesome. It's like paradise. That looks really good right now, doesn't it? After that weather mess we just walked through. But how many of you have walked with the Lord for at least five years? Just give me a wave. Yeah, I, you know, most of us are on that that journey for a while, and 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 we know that life happens, doesn't it? It's like paradise goes sideways, and we're wired for paradise. We were created for heaven. We were created for un. A blocked connection with God, with this life uh, that is abundant, that surrounds us, and, and then the fall. It's like paradise lost, and we realize that, you know, as we step in with Christ, we realize, yes, we sense he's with us, but when life happens to us, and when it rolls out in a different way, it's not like we thought it would be. I didn't think that would happen. I didn't think that could happen. We feel this phenomenon, it's deep inside of us, and I'm calling it separation anxiety. It's what Paul really wants to address in this last important section of chapter 8. This separation anxiety is what you thought would be, you would be connected to, what you thought would happen disappears. You thought, well, certainly with Jesus, we're going to get all this good stuff. And hard stuff hits. Confusing stuff hits. It turns, and when it happens, you've got to make sense of it. And while you struggle to make sense of it, you feel cut off. You feel cut short. You feel cut. And it's a very vulnerable place. And it's a challenging place to be. But in these verses that we'll open up today you will see clearly what the Apostle offers to us, what Christ has done for us, that take care of the big separators in our life. The things that try to cut you off from the life abundant, to cut you off from the fellowship and the connection. And they're all going to be talked about in this section that we open up. The first big one is accusation. I can remember... The first time I encountered serious accusation I was I think I was in second grade. That's a vulnerable time. It's not as bad as junior high, but you know, second grade you're just trying to learn the ropes and there's fifth graders out there. And 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 I was I was kind of a chubby kid. And uh, so I'm playing out on the playground and this kid runs up to me and he goes, "You're fat." And, and I really didn't get it. I was kind of like, I'm fat. And I remember it did, It wasn't supposed to feel good. It wasn't like, you're Paul McCartney. It wasn't that. It was like, you're fat. And, I'm, you know, I, I, and, and I remember I struggled all day. And then, then I went home. And my mom could tell something was wrong. She goes, what's wrong? And I said, am I fat? And just like a good mom, she got down and she goes, Oh, you 're not fat you 're husky. <laughs> she delayed my pain, but we all have had moments of where we 're accused of something, where we 're attacked, we 're misjudged, misrepresented, and we 'll talk more about that, but that certainly is a big separator when you hear those things. It, it's like it separates you from others. It separates you from your sense of self. And it can even separate you from God. And then condemnation, you know, if an accusation is left alone, it will lead you to, yep, that's it, I'm done. I'm fat forever. I'm, I'm done. And you feel like forever isolated. And when you think about that isolation, I mean, probably the most prominent feature when you consider hell is this intense sense of aloneness. All these rock stars or all these people that say, we're going to party in hell, I'm sorry to tell them, no, there's no party. There's an intense sense of aloneness, and yet we can feel hell on earth when we've been exiled and where we've been kind of stuck in this aloneness. And it's, it, it hits us in a way where it blindsides us and we feel this separation anxiety. Like, w- how did I end up here? Why me? And then lastly, all the different hardships that come, the ups and the downs. I was talking to a couple before we got in here. And all the surgeries and the sickness and all the challenges and all the different things in their family. And I'm now 61. I'm, I'm, I'm slowly entering into that privileged group that can sit on the rocking chairs and we can talk about all of our war wounds and all of our aches and pains. And we can show them scars and go, oh, it ain't nothing. Look at this, you know. And we go through all these different hardships. And yet we're trying to make sense of this good God who loves us, who sent his son to give us abundant life. Why isn't that happening the way we thought it would happen? And yet he promises that he will give us everything, all things we need with the Son. And as we look at these verses, as we wrap up chapter 8, you will see that all these big separators are done. They're history. They're finished by the work of the cross. And when Jesus announced those three words, it is finished, he meant it was done. It was secured. It's wrapped up, people. And so let's take a look. If you'll open your Bibles to Romans 8, starting in verse 33, this is what Paul says. He he says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? This idea of accusation. The word accuse means to call into question. Think about that. And then think of one of the names of the devil. The accuser. And right from the get-go in the garden moment, he's calling into question God's truth. Did God really say, oh, you won't die? And so much of what fuels the power of accusations is that slimy, slick, tricky, slippery pieces that get into your head and your heart and you just can't quite get your hands on them to get them out. And they coil around you. And we are surrounded in a world that loves to accuse. They love to function on blame. Who screwed up here? There's no shortage of accusation, blame, finger-pointing on the planet. is there? Is there? We see it in Washington. We see it in the workplace. We see it in the school, and our cities. We see it all over. And the challenge for us is that these accusations come in three different voices. Think with me. The first voice is our own. The things that we say to ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, when we don't do as well. This sermon, I don't know why it messed with my mind the way it did, other than I think God just wanted me to know, you're not going to do this without me, which no preacher really should try that, but you get writing it. I, I had three different PowerPoints. I had five different mind maps. I had outlines. I had a, my desk was all over, and I, I, I said to Betsy, would you just come in here and sit down so I can talk to you and see if I'm making any sense at all? And what do you think were the voices in my head? Oh, Mark, you're, you're a good speaker. Oh, Mark, you preach preached for a long time. Oh, Mark, those people love you. You'll be fine. You think I was thinking that? Hmm. Sheer panic. Oh, my gosh, it's both services together. They're going to throw stones at me. I'm only 60 when I don't want to die, God. Give me a word now. You just crumble. Am I the only one that crumbles this way? You see, it it comes and then our own self-talk begins to just burden us more and more and more until we're down here. But if that's not enough, There is the accuser of the brethren who loves to get us alone. That's his methodology, get you alone. Do you know Peter calls the devil a roaring lion? you know how lions hunt? What they do is they see that nice little group of gazelles out there playing around, and all the male lions with a big hearty roar form an alley that kind of funnels down to a point. And at that little funnel point are the mama lions who have babies to feed. Don't ever mess with a mama lion who has babies to feed. And what the big male lions do is they let out their best roars. And the gazelles start freaking out. And the ones that don't learn to Keep calm, they get into their squirrel brain and they just, ah, and they run right away from the roars, which is right down the funnel, which is right into the mouth of mama. And usually they're singled out. And when you search the scriptures, what you'll find in the scriptures, the big crashes, the big falls, the big mistakes, the big errors, the big whoops, happen when you're alone. It's amazing to me that when you read the original oops in the garden, Adam is the one who's instructed, don't eat of this tree. But when they run into Satan, Satan starts talking to Eve, and Adam doesn't express his voice. It's weird. He's with her, but he's not. They're together, but apart. They're together, but alone. Elijah... Runs for his life, alone. King David stays back in the springtime, alone. Peter denies the Lord, alone. Do you see the theme? Can you recognize it? And what the enemy would want to do is to get whispering in your head, I think the best portrayal I've ever seen of Satan from Hollywood, is in the passion of Christ. Have you seen it? It's, it's like you only want to see it once because it's brutal. But in, this, in the scenario, how Mel Gibson has Satan portrayed is this slick, hooded, just kind of sleek devil that comes. And, and when Christ is in the garden, the, the devil comes and kneels down next to Jesus, and Christ is pouring out blood running from his head. And Satan doesn't come yelling, screaming, accusing, pointing. He comes saying, it's too hard. It's too heavy. It's too big. It's just too hard for you. Because those are the thoughts that have these little barbs that can get in there and just begin to circulate and percolate. And the next thing you know, you're sliding off because you've listened to the wrong voice. But if your own voice doesn't get you, and if the accuser doesn't, man, there's a lot of other voices out there. Is there not people? One of my greatest concerns as I look out in the last 10, 15 years is I bleed in prayer for people in the workplace. I am. I lose sleep over it because in the workplaces where you're spending most of your hours, it's where you have proximity and connection with these people, and what's happening in workplaces is horrible. It's inhumane. It's no wonder we have people that are coming into places with guns and bombs and doing insane things because if you don't treat people human, they'll become not human. They'll become inhuman, and they'll do inhuman things. And and so I I just started looking again at a couple of different places that I go to, the Harvard Business Review, for example, and they did a massive survey of workers. 66% of the workers' survey said at some point in time they got a long period of silent treatment. You see, accusation doesn't have to be verbalized. It can be suggested you don't even deserve my words. 22% of the people surveyed said they don't even think there's a a possibility of developing even a small friendship with people at work. I can't remember the percent of the people that felt at some point in time they were the object of the discussion in the lunchroom. Are you listening? Are you with me? Do you, do you understand? Can you, can you appreciate the accusations and the comments? And now as believers, we are, we are faced in this situation where we, we, there's pressure to be muzzled. Oh, don't mention that. Don't say that. Don't do that. And you have all these voices. But Paul says, don't listen to them. Don't listen to the accusations. Instead, tune in to the truth that comes right on the heels of it. No one accuses you. Why? For God Himself has given you right standing with Himself. He's the professor. He's the one who grades. He's the one that gives the final marks that matter. And as you wade through all the voices, the ones inside, the ones outside, the ones that surround you, we need to be listening to the voice that says, you're mine. You're mine. Don't ever forget it. You're my kid. You bear my name. It's written right here on my hands. You're mine. Always. Forever. It is finished. Done. I remember a time I was... Talking to Betsy about this, I just started pastoring at Eden Prairie, and um, I don't, through a series of events, I wound up leading worship, and uh, I was asked to lead worship at this pastor's conference, and it came at a time in my life where, and this is how accusations can work, that you, you're walking along and everything's fine, and the next thing, you just get hit in the back of the head with this accusation. And I come from a long line of womanizers. A lot of unfaithfulness in the Spencer line. And when I became a believer, one of the first things I said to God is, Lord, I want that to end. Let it end on my watch. I'm grateful to say that God has been faithful. God has strengthened me. God has delivered me. God has helped me. God has surrounded me. But in this season, as I'm preparing to lead this worship, I'm I'm being hounded by these thoughts. You're going to fall. You're going to fall. It's just a matter of time. You're going to fall just like everybody else. You think you're Superman. You're not Superman. You can't do this. All of the history is weighing against you. All the generations against you. You're in trouble. Look at your past. Do you think you can run from your past? you think you can hide from that? And it's just crowding. Have you ever had that where you're, you're, you just feel like you're, you're getting pelted by these accusations and these thoughts? Crowded and harassed. Has that ever? Am I the only one? Please tell me I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> Whew. I thought, am I in the right building? And it was building, and I was trying to hold it. You know, in these moments when you're under that kind of attack, it's so easy for us to go into a self-protect mode. I can do this. I'm going to grit it. You know, and you kind of hold your breath, and you put your head down, and you're, I'm going to do it. And I got up to lead. Here I am in the midst of all these pastors. I got up to lead with my guitar, and before I I even strummed the first chord, I broke down. It just blew up. And I started to cry, and I said, you guys, I I can't do this because I'm so harassed right now with these thoughts. And I was shocked. It no sooner came out of my mouth, and I was surrounded by all these pastors praying over me and putting their hands on and speaking things over me, encouraging me, and they prayed for about 30 minutes, just prayed and praised, and that became our worship time. I say that because sometimes it's not just opening up to God. Sometimes it's opening up to you. This is what's going on. This is what I'm hearing. Help. And there was so much pressure. And it was, but then when, once it got out into the light, all of a sudden, there, there it was. And that night when I went to bed, I, I, I just said to God, I, I don't know what to say. I just say thank you. And he said really clearly to me. He asked me a question. He said, Mark, do you love Betsy? And I said, yes. And he said, then just focus on loving her. And something shifted. Something got back on track. Instead of focusing on not falling, focusing on doing what's right, focused on her, her. (laughs) Right there, that lady, (laughs) you. But it was so harassing. Do you see that? Can you resonate with that? Does that happen? If you gets surrounded and Paul says, "No one." Why? God himself. God himself says, "No. Done." Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter what anyone says. Matters what I say. I'm the professor. I give the final grade. But if you don't stop that train from rolling you get this other thing that hits us, condemnation. Romans 8.34. See, accusation unchecked just keeps rolling. And what happens is you get this sense of it's out of control, I can't stop it, I'm breaking down, And, and you hear these things, you know, you're no good, period, done, you're finished, you're a loser, period, done, it's over, you'll never amount to anything, period, done. Mark your toast. You're just going to fall like all your other ancestors did. You're just going to do what they did. You're toast. That's what condemnation wants to bring you to, put you in, leave you at. And Paul says this, no, don't forget what Jesus did. No one will condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And what is he doing? Twiddling his thumbs? Pleading for you and I. I'm grateful for the people who come and say, Pastor Mark, I pray for you. I'm really grateful. I'm thankful. My wife's a great prayer. I'm always grateful when she says, I've been praying for that. I've been praying for this. But ladies and gentlemen, ain't nobody better than the king himself. What it means to be an intercessor, an in-betweener, an intermediary is that he's put himself right in the middle of our situation. He's he's come right down into it. You you look at Beth and her daughter, they're snuggling now. But Jesus, when he comes, comes right down into the middle (laughs) right here right here. I'm right here with you. That's how it is, people. You think there's no way. Where's God? Where's God? God's going, I'm right here. I'm right here. Right here. Go, go like this, right here. That's where he is. The next time you go, God, where are you? Just right here. He's right here. You see, when, he, when they, he was looking at the fall in the garden, and it was one thing to have this unfettered fellowship, but Adam didn't know what it was like to have the hope of glory, the thing the prophets long to look into, Christ in you. He's in you. Just try to get rid of that. I can kick off my shoes. I can peel off my shoes. I can't get rid of Jesus. He's here. And what he says, when he comes in, is I will never leave you. Never. It's impossible. And he inserts himself right into the middle. You might say, well, Mark, what what about my struggle with sin? Why am I still struggling with the same things? And I would say, Jesus, the intercessor, is pleading for you. He's calling to you. And every day starts with new mercies, new possibilities, new beginnings, with a new hope that you will turn again to him in a way that brings the freedom and that you will realize that he is not condemning you, but he's praying for you. He's standing with you. He's ready to help you. It's a new day. With new mercy. And the promises, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, you will have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That isn't theory. It isn't possibility. That's fact. But you need to watch out as you move through because the accusations of the accuser come. And in the midst of this, we need to listen to Jesus calling to us and calling to Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's ever praying. And yet, when we walk in that way, there are some times where the unexplainable hits and hurts and makes us wonder and we struggle. It's why Paul writes here, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. Does that mean, oh, maybe God's just dropped me off in the middle of nowhere? The word trouble here means pressure, literally means pressure. You felt any pressure lately? I have a lot of people that come and sit down and talk to me and say, Mark, I feel so much pressure. I get it. Calamity means to be squeezed into a narrow place, to be crowded. You find yourself ever saying, can I get a break? You're probably experiencing a little calamity. Destitute means literally to be stripped bare. You just don't have enough. Boy, I'll tell you, there are so many people that I've talked to. They say, I just don't have enough of me. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough smarts. I don't have enough friends. You know, all the, I don't have enough. We can all resonate with that, can't we? The pressures, the crowdedness, the feelings of I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know if I'm able. I don't know if I have enough money. I don't All the, ah, 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 I don't know. And to this, Paul stands up on his soapbox and says, no. In every one of these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. It challenges, it tests our mettle. It tests our faith. Because we know in our frames there are those times where we feel like, ah, I I don't feel like a conqueror. I don't feel like an overcomer. I feel a little overcome if I'm honest. But it isn't you. It's Him working through you. You see, all these things are defeated by Jesus. They're done. You saw the answers. Who's going to accuse you? God's the one that's made you right. Good luck. Who's going to condemn you? God's the one that called you his own. You're in. Try to change that. Can those hardships that you pass through do anything to you? No. But you know what? Conquerors conquer. There's always a test before a testimony. There's a valley before the mountaintop. There's these situations where we have to go through and partner with when we realize, oh, yes, it's not just me alone. I'm I'm not sufficient to the task. It is only through Christ I can do all things. And when these separators try to do their worst, Jesus is there pleading. Jesus is right here investing himself, speaking, calling, leading, saying, go here, go... And if when we, when we pause and we listen, we can experience how we can live at another level. Church, hear me now. Listen. I don't think it's going to get easier for us in America. I don't. I hope I'm wrong. Man, I hope I'm wrong. But I think the pressure's The misunderstandings, the misrepresentations of the church are only going to accelerate. Don't you? Don't you see it? I don't care. Because I think what's heading up is we're going to walk like Paul walked into Rome. We're going to walk into situations where the king and his kingdom, which cannot be stopped, which cannot be toppled, which is not voted in, which is established, will stand. The bottom line is we read the end of the book, didn't we? God wins. He wins. And the writer of this letter isn't some guy who sits in an ivory tower who's never been shipwrecked. He's done that. Been bitten by poisonous snakes. Been that. He's been stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. Got up and went back and preached. Done that. This guy's resume reads like someone who's passed through some hardships. And he's saying, listen, I'm sure, I am sure, I am sure that I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing He gives you this expansive list. East to west, north to south, up or down. Angels, demons, all these different things. Paul is sure. Are you? Am I? Circumstances change. God's promises do not. And the sureness of living on his promises comes with practice and focus. So as I close today, I just want to give you four practical things, knowing these truths, knowing these big separators that come after us to separate us from one another, to separate us from God, to challenge our life, the accusation, the condemnation, the hardships, all those things, knowing the truths that Jesus has established us, what then do I put in the front pocket of my brain so when I walk out that door and get in my car, when I go to work or school tomorrow, when I go into my neighborhood, when I go into my family gatherings, which may or may not be hostile company, how do I walk as an overcomer? Here's what I want to offer to you. First, rest. Rest. Do you realize that God works when we rest? And you know what? God rests when we work. Okay, Mark, go ahead. Have at it. Call me when you're done. There is something about the posture of rest that in a moment we stop striving, where we set, where God's spirit settles. A lot of times when we're in a panic and frantic, when we're running around and, where are you, God? We fail to realize he's right here. He's right here. He's probably shouting at me, where are you, Mark? I'm right here. before we do anything in a position where we've just been assaulted by accusations, where we've just been rejected by condemnation, where we might have been hit by a hardship or something that's really troubled us. It sounds so counterintuitive, but we need to rest. We need to pause. Be still. Out of that rest, then, we can rejoin. We can reconnect with the reality that Jesus is in us. He's with us. He's around us. He's for us. He's working. I so appreciate one of the things that Sharon has developed as a, as a minister, as an expertise in a prayer, which is a very simple but profound process of helping a person to bring one of these trying so-called separators into the room and sit down And Sharon will listen and help that person find Jesus and walk with Jesus through the moment. One of the most important things that we can do and practice as believers is in the middle of a storm, find Jesus. When the boat was rocking, those disciples, most of whom were fishermen who grew up around the sea, were running around like panicky school kids. Ah! And Jesus is asleep right here in the stern. At the very least, keep your wits to go over and go, excuse me, Lord, could I wake you up from your nap so you could just call this storm to stop? But see, if you don't rest and you don't rejoin, you miss it. You miss it. And the enemy loves that because if he can create the distance, if he can create the separation, he's got a lot of room to work. As you rejoin, remember, remember what the Lord has said. Go back to these verses and read them. Preach to your soul. Do you preach to your soul? I preach to my soul. I learned as an athlete to talk to myself and say, come on, we're going to do this. And you kind of pep talk yourself. You give yourself a little, come on, let's go, Mark. You can do this, Spencer. Focus. This is your job. Focus in there. I preach to myself. The psalmist preaches to himself. Come on, soul. Believe in your God. Your God is your rock. He's your refuge. He's your strong tower. He's always there. Preach. You've got to remember. Don't let the book get dusty. Open the book. Read it to your soul. Preach to yourself. Stand on it. It's a living and active book. And it reminds you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You see, the circumstances around you are an illusion. They're not reality. This is reality. All the stuff around here at one point in time will be no more. It will fade. It will be over. This lives on. This reality. And so you've got to remember what is it. What's the reality? And lastly, then, you can rejoice. To rejoice, joy is just rediscovered certainty that God's got this. That's what joy is. You're rediscovering, oh, he's got it. He's got me. I was not, when I came here to Bridgewood, I thought I was probably done with ministry. My counseling business was growing. I had lots of opportunities to do some other consulting, and I was very tired. In fact, in many ways, ministry rolled out in a way I didn't think it would. God's honest truth, I thought maybe I was done. And Tom Stewart is a really nice guy, but he's a little rascally. (laughs) So Betsy and I, we had known Tom and Susan and the church here for a long time, and So we were looking for a place to land. So we came here and I was just hoping just to to sit kind of where Craig Hooliston is. Just sit back there and just nobody knows me. And then Tom says, the rascally little guy that he is, hey, would you preach every once in a while? And Mark, being the very dumb guy that he is, said, sure, why not? And that led to Consulting with the staff to help Tom plan his retirement. And that led to doing the interim youth pastor at the age of 50. I thought, surely now, yeah, Brian knows, surely now I will go see the Lord face to face. And then during that time, they were trying to figure out what to do when when Tom transitioned. And much to my surprise, I had no idea this was coming. They asked me if I would consider being the next senior pastor. And I was deeply impacted by it. I kind of did one of these Who are you talking to? And I knew at that point in time, all my consulting sense came up to say that, you know, I'm probably the interim, I'm not that much younger than Tom. Consulting sense would be, Tom was here for about 20 years. You want to find someone who can replace him about 20 years. The church cycles. We get older. You need a younger person in who can be mentored. You need to be supportive. Brendan wasn't on the scene, though. And, you know, you run and you run and you run and you run and you run. And I thought, you know, it was going to go okay. And then I, I ran head-on into Burnout right at the end when we transitioned to Brendan, I, I just hit a wall. I did not see it coming. And that's where these four things literally saved my life. I was grateful. I had told the LT when this comes down, I, I don't know, maybe they'll take me out back in the field and shoot me, or, you know... Could I, could I get some rest? And they were very great, gracious. They said, yes. So I got a space of rest, which helped me to rejoin. You, one of the, the greatest professional dangers of a pastor, and pray for Brendan. He's on, a, he's on a break now, and he regularly takes a break. I endorse it. As an older guy, we older guys didn't get spans of breaks. It, that doesn't mean he shouldn't get them. He needs them. Because the professional hazard of pastoral ministry is you can do all the stuff, you can be so close to it, but it doesn't affect you. Which is why I've worked with 26 fallen pastors. You need to be able to rejoin. Because when you rejoin, you start to remember. And I remembered why I got into this business. It wasn't because I thought I was a good speaker, a great pastor. It was because I was a mess And this guy named Jesus took me and shook me out like a sheet and stood me up at my feet and said, you're going to walk, son. I was so impacted by that and so touched by that, I said, if I could do that for another human being, I'm in. I didn't even know what to call it. But I'm in. But I had forgotten that. But out of the rest and the rejoining, I remembered. And that leads me to that rediscovered certainty that God's not done with me yet. And you know what? He's not done with you yet. He's not done with the church in America yet. He's not even done with America yet. He's not even done with the planet yet. He's not done. He's done some things so we can get it done. So the question is, will you and I stand up, step up, step in, and overcome? Pray with me, will you? Lord, this is a great opportunity for us. 2019. I remember how we were all shaking in our boots at the year 2000. (laughs) But yet when we look around, Lord, we see changes. We see things happening in our state, in our country, in our world that concern us. And yet you are the answer. Yet you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray for my friends here this morning. If they've been punctured by accusation, breathe life. Remind them. Speak to them. Thank you for being in them. Thank you for being in it with them. Do not let that accusation... Continue, but in the name of Jesus, stop it in its tracks. Any who are trapped by condemnation, who feel like I'm too far gone, I'm too far lost, I'm just not worth it, Holy Spirit, breathe into them new hope. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will bring it to pass. And Lord, as we get up and go, we realize that we go into different situations, different hardships, different people who are struggling, different financial mishaps, different pain, different emotional pain, all kinds of situations. You are the God. You are the only God who gets right down in the middle of that muck, right in the midst of it with us. Remind us. Encourage us. Holy Spirit, breathe hope in us. And as we return to worship, we pray that there would be connections that would be popping, that you, the Spirit of God, would be speaking from within, deep calls to deep. And Lord, let it be so as you breathe into us overcoming power and hope and truth. And we will give you all the glory and the honor and praise, because you are the overcomer. Amen.
2: The cross has the final word. The cross has the final.